as some of you will have discovered, you can buy an endless number of books on the topic of evangelism. And in them, you will find innumerable suggestions as to how you might better reach the lost with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In many, you can discover suggested techniques and programs, some of which can be helpful in motivating churches and Christians to be proactive in evangelism. But if you want to study the topic of evangelism, the best book by far, of course, is the Bible itself. And in it, you'll discover certain realities about gospel work. Some of those realities are sometimes overlooked or sometimes ignored, sometimes willfully, other times just out of sheer ignorance that it's even there. Sometimes within the wider Christian community, you will come across what seems to be an air of almost triumphalism as it is claimed that the local church is riding forth and redeeming the whole community for Christ. And in most cases where such a claim is being made, even a cursory glance will make it abundantly clear that nothing of the sort is happening However, history does show us that from place to place and from time to time, God has indeed moved in most remarkable ways when seemingly whole communities were brought under conviction of sin and turned to Christ. But taken within the context of global evangelism across 2,000 years, that is not the typical experience of most local churches or even of those in full-time evangelism. And the Bible demonstrates for us just what an uphill battle evangelism will often prove to be. And the Bible also tells us why this will so often be the case. And it shows it to us most supremely in the battle that even Jesus himself faced in seeking to bring people to faith and belief in himself. We read in verse 6 of Mark chapter 6 that Jesus marveled at the extent and depth of unbelief in the people, even though they had he himself in the midst of them. And it's clear that this verse throws light upon what is at the heart of the problem. Unbelief is hardwired into the sinner. We are born in unbelief. We are born with unbelief. The natural, sinful man and woman is a man or woman or boy or girl of unbelief. We're born with rebellious hearts which reject and deny God 
and which reject and deny his truth. This is the first and foremost spiritual problem. And it isn't a problem primarily of the intellect. It's a problem of the heart. Like me, you're probably going numb with all the talk and debate about Brexit. Now there's a good example of people with differing views trying to state their own case and win over the views of others. And you'll notice two main tactics. One is bashing and discrediting your opponents by trying to show how wrong and foolish their views are and at the same time putting forward your own agenda and trying to demonstrate how much better and superior your own position is. It's all about trying to win arguments. And here's the thing. Preaching the gospel is not like that at all. Preaching the gospel is not about trying to win an argument. If you think it is, then you've completely misunderstood the Bible. The gospel is about proclaiming God's truth. And he does the rest by the power of his Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Athens, the philosophy capital of the world. The place for exchanging views and thoughts and ideas. For trying to change this person's position by means of persuasive argument. What did Paul do? Verse 18 of Acts 17. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. And the reaction of those men in Acts 17 says it all. They were completely baffled. They didn't understand a word because he hadn't engaged in their normal tactics. These highly intelligent, educated men just being preached to, simply being told this is the truth, that's not what they were used to. We need to hear you again on this matter, they said, so that you can try and explain what you mean because we didn't understand a word of that. These were the best in best educated men on the planet possibly they didn't understand a word he was saying because he preached the gospel and as we saw last week the gospel is foolish to the wise and on Mars Hill where Paul is where there are all of these pagan shrines loads of them does he move from shrine to shrine and trying to debunk each one in turn, pointing out all their errors and faults. He could have done that, but he doesn't. He stands and he preaches the truth of the gospel. You have a shrine here to the unknown God, he says. Let me tell you who he is and let me tell you what he's done. And he preaches the truth. He doesn't try to make arguments against all of these other things. Almost certainly in some of the things that he mentions, he's actually questioning some of these other religions. 
but he stands and he preaches. And he, he just states facts if you read it. He declares truth. And here's what's interesting. In less than 200 words, as it appears in our English translations, in less than 200 words, he's telling them of their need to repent. And he's telling them of the coming judgment. Within 200 words, repent. Because there's judgment coming. Because that is the gospel. That's what lies at the heart of the gospel. Many on that occasion mocked Paul because he dared to suggest that Jesus rose from the dead. What a ridiculous thing to say. But we also read some, some believed. And you see this believing is not merely intellectual acknowledgement it's not just an intellectual acceptance or assent as to what's just been preached it's not Paul winning the argument it's something far deeper than that something has occurred in the depth of their soul something very significant within them has changed the gospel has done its work in them They've been brought to new birth. They've been brought to repentance and faith in Christ. They have believed. And amazingly, in Mark chapter 6, as Jesus is ministering in Nazareth, amongst his own people, in his own backyard, the vast majority of them remained in unbelief. And this account is a great help to us at a number of points. Number one, the curse of unbelief, one, is not for lack of evidence. It's not for lack of evidence now the residents of Nazareth have had a most remarkable privilege because for more than 20 years they have had living amongst them as a child, a teenager, an adolescent, a man who never once committed any sin. Do you remember that passage about the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control do you remember that astounding definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 love suffers long and is kind it doesn't envy it doesn't parade itself it's not puffed up and proud it doesn't behave rudely it doesn't seek its own agenda it's not provoked thinks no evil it doesn't rejoice in iniquity it rejoices in the truth it bears all things believes all things hopes all things and endures all things these people in Nazareth have seen all of that being lived out perfectly in the life of Jesus for over 20 years 
and yet they remain in unbelief. Because unbelief is not due to a lack of evidence. Do you recall all those passages in Paul's letters comparing the kind of people we used to be as sinners and the type of people we should now be as Christians? These people in Nazareth have only ever seen what you should be in Jesus. And yet they remain in unbelief. That passage in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul lists some of the chief characteristics of sinful living and then says to those Corinthian believers, and such were some of you. But this Jesus never was. And these residents have lived with him for over 20 years. He was their neighbour. Some were at school with him. And he was the model student in every respect. Some are friends of his brothers and sisters because Mary and Joseph had other children and Jesus has younger brothers and sisters. Did they not notice the difference between his other brothers and sisters and this eldest son in the carpenter's home? Did they not see the difference? Some are the best friends of his mother Mary. Some would have been Joseph's closest friends. How many times did they say, Oh, Fred, he's not like your oldest lad, is he? Some used to play with Jesus when they were all children together. And Jesus never once cheated. He never once called them names. Some have been his customers in his carpenter's shop. And there was never a dodgy deal or a botched job. Not once. Some have the furniture he made in their homes and it's of the finest quality because he's no cowboy builder. And just as a little aside, is it not astounding that the one who simply had to speak creation into being now works with his hands and earns bread by the sweat of his brow, the Lord of all creation? How Christ humbled himself on our account. And of course being a carpenter is a very skillful job. In the eyes of many it's probably quite a humble occupation I suppose. But here Jesus exalts such honest labour as something, something honourable. Be encouraged by that. Good honest labour is honourable in God's eyes. And these people of Nazareth, at every point, they've been dealing with the one who has a divine nature and who has never sinned. And now, they can't stand him. They despise him. They're offended by him. And this is the point, you see. Their unbelief is not for lack of evidence. They've, have, they've had evidence pouring out of Jesus' pores for over 20 years. And these people have no hang-ups over things like creation versus evolution. These people have no hang-ups over things like science has disproved the Bible. 
All these things which today are said to be hurdles, which get in the way of people believing. These people never had those hurdles. They never had those issues. They never had those problems. They believed in creation. They believed in God who was a creator. You'll hear Christians saying, it's those things that are preventing people turning to Christ. But here in this account is the proof that that is not the case. Because it's nothing to do with lack of evidence. Many Christians think that what we need to do is make the evidence clearer. That will convince people. How much more clarity do you need than to have Jesus living with you for over 20 years? And then performing all of these miracles which were being witnessed by thousands. If it's just down to evidence, the whole town of Nazareth should be converted by now. But they despise him. What's going on? If we ignore these basic spiritual truths, we will go so wrong in our Christian lives. The interesting thing that is in verse 2, they acknowledge the evidence. He's been teaching and hearing, they're astonished. Where did the man get these things? How is he able to perform these mighty works by his hands? They acknowledge the evidence. The problem is, they cannot accept it. They do not have the capacity to accept it. They cannot. Because the problem is unbelief. And unbelief is not first and foremost about the intellect. Unbelief is not about winning or losing arguments. Unbelief is not about the evidence. It's not about proving or disproving facts. Unbelief is the hardwired condition of the sinful heart. And when it weighs up the reasons to believe or not to believe, the sinful heart will always come down on the side of not believing. Always. Unless and until God changes the heart. Because this world loves darkness rather than light. The sinful world presents us with all of its reasons and says it's because of this that we don't believe. At least that's what they think they're doing and that's what they think is happening. But the Bible presents a different reality which is that they begin from a position of unbelief. And then they come up with their own reasons to justify it. Their hearts are hearts of unbelief. It's not for lack of light that they cannot see. The light of the world is standing in their midst. It's because they lack spiritual sight that they cannot see. Satan has blinded their minds. Unbelief is not a position that people have come to and we have to reverse it. Unbelief is the condition they were born with. 
And the only solution is for them to be born again by God in Christ. As the Old Testament puts it, that heart of stone, which is a heart of unbelief and always will be, needs to be taken out. And the heart of flesh needs to be put in in its place and then they can believe. The curse of unbelief, it is not for lack of evidence. Number two, the curse of unbelief, who are you to lecture me? Ever heard that said? Who are you to lecture me? The disdain in which Jesus is held in verses 2 and 3 is something that you too will often face as a Christian. Something that we will face as a church. And who are you to lecture me? Just as the unsaved world in his day tried to find all kinds of reasons to discredit and dismiss Jesus, the world today tries to find all kinds of reasons to discredit and dismiss Christ's messengers. You can see that there is a degree of acknowledgement in the people in verse 2, as we've said. But that such a man as this can come out with these things is totally unacceptable. It's totally unacceptable. One of their own cannot be capable of this. And you'll find that this same principle has an impact upon you whenever you try to share the gospel. And I guess it can do so in two main ways. First, uh, some people you try to share the gospel with will want to try to discredit you and dismiss you on the basis that you simply are not qualified to address such topics. Who are you? Please take note, Jesus himself chose to come from a background which made him unlikely as a herald. It wasn't an accident that he was born into Mary and Joseph's home. It wasn't an accident that he was the son of a carpenter. It wasn't an accident that he lived in a backwater somewhere up north that most people have never even been to where they all speak with a strange accent. It wasn't by accident that Jesus chose that. He was an unlikely herald to be able to speak with such authority. And that was planned. And please also note that those he chose to be his apostles after him were even less likely candidates than he was. Fishermen. Unknown, unschooled men. Even a tax collector. Who'd choose a tax collector? Who's ever known a tax collector tell the truth? You might find yourself, does Jesus not understand how the world works and thinks? What's he playing at? Why take such an approach? Why not choose to bring himself from a much more suitable background for someone who's going to do and say these things? 
Why not choose the apostles from a more suitable background, a more suitable heritage, a more suitable family line? Well, the Bible tells us, just like we saw from 1 Corinthians last week. Men must glory in God, not men. So God has chosen weak and foolish things to shame the wise and the mighty. God does not work to the world's agenda. He works to his own. And his ways aren't our ways. His ways are not the world's ways. And we need to keep that constantly in our minds as Christians and as churches. God does not work the way of the world. He works counter to it. You start abandoning these truths and you will face only frustration and disappointment as a Christian. Abandon these truths and in your frustration and disappointment, you're likely to end up abandoning faithful gospel preaching. Sadly, that's what's happened in many churches. Because instead, you're employing something of your own invention rather than sticking to what God has given us in his word. The other important lesson to learn from this that often the hardest place to witness is your own backyard. It is. Perhaps you're the only Christian in your home. That can be one of the hardest places. As all your family misunderstand you. They think you think you're better than them now. Or at work amongst the colleagues who you've been with for years. Or amongst your school friends in the classroom. The holy Joe who's become the butt of everybody's jokes. Your own backyard can be one of the hardest places to be a witness. Many people who go into full-time Christian work move to new places to serve. But you know, sometimes... The more difficult calling is to stay right where you are. Sometimes it can be that such is the opposition. The best thing actually is to keep silent a lot of the time. To stop casting your pearls before swine as the Bible puts it. And simply just live out a godliness and a righteousness. So as to heap coals upon their heads. Come back to that phrase in a moment. Look at your saviour. Look at the men he chose. Remember him. Remember them. Remember how he was treated even though he deserved none of it. And count it all joy and count it a very great privilege to walk in his footsteps. And be assured that he's with you. And he will never forsake you. And thirdly, the curse of unbelief, the severity of the coming judgment. I just used a phrase, heaping coals upon their heads. Living a godly, righteous life in front of the ungodly and the unrighteous. Making them more and more aware of their own faults and of their own sins. And in their guilt, and in their conscience, heaping coals upon their heads. 
Because there's no greater sin than to be confronted with the gospel and to reject it and to continue in unbelief. That's what Jesus teaches in verses 10 and 11. And I'm very glad that these words came from the mouth of the Saviour. Otherwise we might have wondered, has one of the apostles got this wrong? But it's from the mouth of Christ. There's no greater condemnation than for those who've come face to face with gospel light and yet choose to remain in darkness. What is it ultimately that condemns men and women and boys and girls to eternal destruction? It is their rejection of Christ in their unbelief. That's it. It's because of their unbelief that they've missed out on earthly blessings. Why couldn't Jesus do any mighty works in Nazareth? Was there a force in Nazareth that is stronger than he is that's stopping him? No, of course not. Again and again, when you read accounts of specific miracles that Jesus performed, you discover that we are told that there is faith and belief in the person that he helps. From Mary at the wedding at Cana, the very first of Christ's miracles that's recorded in the Gospels, where she says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. See, there's belief and faith there. To the paralyzed man's four friends, to Jairus, to the woman with the flow of blood who knows that if I just touch the hem of his garment, to the centurion whose servant was dying, of whom Jesus said, I haven't even seen faith like this in a Jew, let alone a Roman centurion. You see, wherever Jesus performs these mighty acts, belief and faith are often mentioned. But in Nazareth, in Nazareth, there is hardly any belief. In Nazareth, there is virtually no faith. So no great works are done. And they miss out on great blessing because of their unbelief. There are a few, verse 5, but only a few. But missing out on those earthly blessings is nothing compared to the judgment that awaits them. To reject the Lord Jesus Christ as being of no consequence to you, to declare in your unbelief that his suffering and death were pointless and of no worth or value, is to bring upon yourself the hottest anger of a righteous and a holy God. To say that his son is to be despised and rejected by you is to bring the father's awful condemnation upon your head. To laugh at any suggestion that you're a sinner and to turn away from his salvation is to walk headlong into the hottest part of hell. Even the citizens of wicked Sodom and Gomorrah, says Jesus, in all of their sexual immorality and in all of their wickedness and in all of their depravity, they will be judged less severely than you who have heard Christ, seen Christ and reject him. And the same is happening today. 
the hottest judgment comes upon you if you've heard of the gospel and rejected it. I don't need him. Are you clear in the choice you are making, you who reject Christ? That's the message that needs to go out loud and clear. Are you clear in the choice you're making? And as surely as Jesus wept over unbelieving Jerusalem, it's recorded in Matthew 23 and Luke 19. Jerusalem, I would have gathered you under my wings like a mother hen gathers in her chicks, but you would not come. Surely what grief it brings to the heart of God to visit sinners with his punishment and condemnation when his own son has already paid the penalty for sins at Calvary. There's no pleasure in the Godhead for the punishment of sins, but he must do it because he is holy and he is righteous and it actually glorifies himself to give to sin the punishment it deserves. If you continue in unbelief this morning, it isn't because you lack the evidence to convince you. You have more than enough. And that's true for every man and woman out there. You must bow the knee before Christ, confess your sins, ask him to visit you with his grace. Ask him to open your eyes and open your heart to his mercy and his compassion that you might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved for God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him that's the good news would you not do that today while today is still a day of grace forsake your sinful ways Call upon the name of the Lord that you might be saved.